You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today, we're going to be talking to Emily. She's a doula who attends births in hospitals in New York City. And we're going to hear from her some of what her clients go through, as well as what she goes through being a doula in New York. And I think some of these personal accounts will allow us to see what things really look like inside maternity care. You know, we talk about statistics all the time, and the U.S. has some pretty scary statistics when it comes to maternity care, like a too high C-section rate, a rising maternal mortality rate, the fact that African-American women are several times more likely to die in childbirth. These are numbers that we can only really understand when we hear the stories about what is going on inside facilities that are producing these statistics. So welcome, Emily. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. Yeah. Um, Everyone can probably hear Emily's accent. She's originally from England, FYI. Um, so, so Emily, you are a birth and postpartum doula, correct? Mm-hmm, that's correct. Okay. So, um, so tell us a little bit about what a birth doula does. I know a lot of people confuse a doula with a midwife and they're two very different things. Yes, that's correct. They are two very different things. So a birth doula will, um, first of all, I mean, with a provider, so with a midwife or with a with a obstetrician, you're you. I guess you are choosing them, but with a doula, you are um, you know you're definitely getting that person that you pick. So um, a doula is somebody who works one on one with clients. Um, they are somebody who does not provide provide any kind of medical. Um, really, don't provide any kind of medical advice or care. We primarily just provide physical emotional mental support um there are kind of different ideas within the realm of what a doula is also so for me i really identify with the idea that i'm both a birth coach so somebody who's with you during the birth um the whole time like physically helping you to move around or um helping you to to relax or showing you um showing you different things you could be doing in terms of, of comfort measures. But I also really identify with the idea of being an advocate. That is not the case for every doula. Some doula trainings really don't um, allow for the idea of being an advocate. I really don't see that there is a place for not being an advocate at this point, being in the hospital and seeing some of the things that I've seen. The primary difference, though, um, to answer your question, Kristen, is that we do not provide medical care, whereas a midwife does. Um, right. And we also would be with the per- with the birthing person the entire time. So um, with a midwife or with an obstetrician, they would be checking in periodically, but we would actually go to somebody's home if they're giving, giving birth in the hospital and go with them to the hospital. Um, or we would be, um, or if they were having a home birth, we would probably be there first before anybody else got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're kind of also with that person throughout the whole pregnancy. So it's really, for me, it's really about the relationship. Um, and what's important about being an advocate for me is that I'm not paid or tied to or have a relationship in any way with the hospital. Um, so I'm able to kind of provide uh, support for that person if they're needing to advocate for themselves where I'm not biased towards wanting to protect the interests of the hospital, the medical facility. And Uh that is a a really key part of that is that I'm able to be there as another person who is not tied to that institution, which I think um, gives you, gives a lot of power to that position. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to, we're going to get into that in a little bit because I'm sure, I'm sure people who don't know very much about maternity care doulas are thinking, why would you need that? 
right? Yes. Um, but I think we'll make that pretty clear today. <laughs> yeah. um, so just to give a little bit more clarity um, on the difference between a doula and a midwife, because again, I know that this can be really confusing for people. Um, so a midwife or an obstetrician would be the primary medical provider mm -hmm. um, who, would, who, would, who would actually help you in making medical decisions mm -hmm. and, and or perform medical procedures. Whereas when you're saying a doula provides physical support, that physical support looks more like, um, you know, assisting you to go to the bathroom or letting you, you know, lean on her if you needed to be standing up, but you needed some support, you know, through contractions or um, you needed your back rubbed or mm -hmm. your feet rubbed or, you know, anything like that. So when we say physical support, that's, that's, you know, anything that's sort of non-medical physical support, which... Yes, quite a few options for that <laughs> during the yes, very many. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and another thing I think that's really important for people to understand is um, the, the difference between the doula and the nurse role. Um, some nurses do, do fill or try to fill sort of a doula role, which would just be continuous support. Um, but that, you know, today is not really possible in in, you know, almost anywhere um, because just the way um, maternity wards are staffed, um, the nurse patient ratios really don't allow almost ever for the same nurse to be with a single patient for the duration of their, um, of their labor through birth. So the doula is there is really the only consistent, you know, team member throughout pregnancy, prenatal care through birth and then into postpartum for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that's a really big part of why, um, of why our role is so important because there isn't a lot of consistency. And for many people, they don't know that there won't be a lot of consistency and it's just because of resources and how, um, and how the staffing of hospitals work. But for instance, people don't know that their, their, their provider won't be there as soon as they get to the hospital necessarily. And they don't know that their provider might not be there for quite a while. And they don't right. know that the nurse might be coming in every four hours to check their vitals and um, look at the tracing of their baby, but they can look at the, the baby's heart rate tracing from outside of the room. So, you know, if you, if you're going in with, with a partner or alone, then you might be alone for quite a lot of your birth. And I think people don't really understand that until they're in there and they don't understand quite how much you need to interact with labor, um, mm -hmm. with contractions. So, um, and, that's, and that's something that I, I think is, is largely because of the way that we portray birth in the media, in movies. I think that we don't do a good job of really making it realistic. Right, it's always, it's always like, the woman's water breaks, she starts screaming and they run to the hospital and yep. they like throw her in a wheelchair or on a gurney and like she pops out a baby immediately screaming and everyone's freaking out. Yeah, Which, like, that's, that's not that was a like huge disservice to, to the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think going back to what you, what you said of um, like it being uh, a role that is like, separate it's 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 interesting for me having a role that I wish didn't have to be a role um but I feel that it does have to be a role I feel that there does need to be an extra person there who's not um who's both not tied to the hospital um but also who can be there for the whole time and is there primarily for the birthing person and their partner if they have a partner with them um because that is what that is the gap that is left by the current medical care system. Right, right. Um, which which yeah. is actually being recognized more and more by that system, right? Yes. Um, doulas have been around for a couple decades now, but they've really been under the radar in a lot of ways. Um, but more and more, you know, they're they're the profile is growing. I remember in in 2014, the um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists came out with a, an obstetric care consensus called the Safe Prevention of the Primary Caesarean Delivery, where um, they mentioned doulas, 
as being one of the most effective tools to improve labor and delivery outcomes, which was kind of a big deal for doulas, even though doulas themselves, you know, have known this for a while. And, you know, we've had this research, but it was really cool um, to see the, you know, the National Obstetricians Group come out and say this. <clears throat> and this is something we haven't really touched on, which is that the, the presence of a doula at a birth significantly, statistically speaking, significantly improves some of the outcome measures on, on births. So for example, um, the cesarean delivery rate can be significantly reduced. Um, maternal satisfaction is higher. There's less of a chance of a baby um, needing to go to NICU. Those are the three I can think of off the top of my head, but um, that cesarean delivery rate, I want to say it's as much as 28% lower chance of having a cesarean, which mm -hmm. is a huge, huge number. And then earlier this year, that same organization, ACOG, came out with a committee opinion from their, um, their obstetric practice committee, where they again recommended doulas as being associated with improved outcomes for women in labor, including shortening labor and fewer operative deliveries as well as uh, fewer reports of dissatisfaction by women. So those are, those are pretty significant, I think. And it's pretty awesome that, uh, that doulas are getting that, that kind of recognition. I think it is really great. And I, I think that it really, um, for me, it, it, it signifies to me that I need to kind of take some time and pause and um, readdress what it means to be a doula. I think, like you said, we have been under the radar for quite a while. And now that we're getting this recognition, I think it's really important that we decide whether we want to, what we want to do with that and how we want to organize as a profession. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also really important to understand that many of the things that a doula does can be done by anybody um, <laughs> who, who is there. I think it's also really important to understand that, that doulas were around way before we started calling them doulas. And I think it's important to mm -hmm. say that because there is a fair amount of appropriation that happens within the field. So it's really important to understand that this idea of a doula came from somewhere. And um, while we can say that we have all these certifications and things, and I think those things are important, I think it's also important to recognize that there are many communities, often communities of people of color who have been doing mm -hmm. this, you know, for, for, forever really it's just been part of a part of their culture for a long time and i think i think in regards to all this new research it's really great because anything like this that is so beneficial in terms of outcomes mm -hmm. um, and in terms of evidence-based medicine which is really what it's all about at the end of the day is just practicing safe evidence-based medicine um, it's really important that we that we both use that research for, you know, for the benefit of, of the cause, which is, you know, great outcomes and great experiences for birthing people and for their babies, but also that we decide whether we want to, um, whether we want to bring it into the mainstream in terms of being in practice. And by that, I mean, there are a lot of hospitals now that have doula programs. And for me, that is kind of a double-edged sword because it's great to know that the um the services are available for more people but once you start to co-op something in a hospital um mm -hmm. you start to be able to decide how it goes and i think that that happens very slowly and i'm just very wary especially um when i'm working with clients who are people of color i'm very wary of how a lot of systems statistically fail them and part of my job is to be there and and really hold space and um, and notice those things and especially in the last year as I started to see and be really tuned in to what obstetric violence was I've become a lot more aware of my role as a witness mm -hmm. and I mean a witness in terms of compassionate witnessing and I mean a witness in terms of yes. in a legal sense yeah mm -hmm. in a legal sense and um, it, I started to feel like I um, I started to really feel like wow what are the implications of my role here especially yeah. if, we're, if we're going into obstetric violence and then we're going into lawsuits. What's my role as somebody who's seeing this? And that's what really tipped me into wanting to be more of an advocate was seeing these things and yeah. thinking, if I see them and I don't say anything, am I part of it? Well, on that note, we need to take a really quick break. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. 
We're talking to Emily, who is a doula in New York City. We were, um, we've talked a little bit about what, what a doula does and what a doula is. And we're starting to get into the idea of um, kind of the hard part of the doula job, mm-hmm. which is, um, Emily, right before we went to break, you mentioned obstetric violence. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty heavy topic to get right into. But unfortunately, <laughs> it's a huge part of a doula's job. Obstetric violence is a form of, of gender-based violence that occurs to women during childbirth. So that's a really vague definition. But um, essentially, it's, it's kind of any appropriation of the woman's body. So for example, it might look like um, a, a care provider forcing a woman to stay in bed even though she wants to be moving around. Um, because that's easier for the care provider, even though it's against the wishes and against the best interests of the patient. Um, It might be um, a care provider withholding pain medication um, for, you know, whatever reason that is not in the best interest of the patient, but is, you know, uh, doing it in a way to sort of manipulate the situation in some way um, Mm -hmm. to benefit the institution or the care provider. Um, probably the most straightforward obstetric violence is when a patient um, either doesn't give permission for or explicitly refuses a an intervention or you know a procedure of some sort, and it is done to her anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and sadly, this is something that doulas have to deal with. Um, really yeah. frequently. And um, I think, you know, we're, we're getting into one of the big dirty secrets in maternity care, which is um, the abuse of patients that is so common. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think what's so interesting and, and uh, a friend and, and um, colleague said this to me and it has just stuck with me because it just helped me make sense. And, and so much of it is about putting language to stuff that doesn't, that is not supposed to add up, but it, but you're seeing it and you're kind of, you know, I didn't go into doula work thinking I'm going to see obstetric violence. I didn't even know what that was until I kept seeing it. And then I was like, hang on a second. Wasn't I conditioned to trust you because you're a doctor and this whole thing starts, um, starts tumbling down. And, um, you know, that this person said to me, well, Obstetrics is the one field of medicine where culture rules over evidence-based care. And that is to say that you would not have a brain surgeon who would look at all the new evidence, who would look at all these things and say, you know what, but I've always kind of just done it this way, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me that that's what happens. I have, um, I have OBs who are like, you know what, I've just always done an episiotomy, which for anybody that doesn't know, an episiotomy is a cut to the perineum and it's not evidence-based. It's not something that is is currently practiced as like currently seen as best practice as as um, a routine, mm-hmm. like to do yeah, to as, as a routine. Yes, yeah. to do to everybody. And it's just these 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 doctors who are like, well, you know, I've always done this, and I've always done this, and it 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 it, it is meaningful that this happened. This this is something that happens primarily to women. It is not just women that that give birth. And I just want to want to flag that up because I know that the experiences of um. Non-binary, non-binary trans and queer people uh, are also extremely violent. Um, yeah, thank you for saying in, in, that. In, yeah. in, in hospitals and actually more so and in different ways sometimes, um, which, is, which is why that's actually, those, those are actually groups of, um, of people that I really feel passionate about supporting. But I think, yeah, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, I, I said the other day to somebody on the phone, if you want to understand birth and maternity care in this in this country you have to be willing to give up a view of society that a lot but that for most people makes them feel safe and I think that is where when I share my stories about what I see that is what what makes people say hang on a second oh but that's not right and, and it makes them argue for it and what they're arguing for and it is an idea of the world in which they feel safe because yeah. when I when I challenge this idea that doctors always keep you safe when you can always trust them. I challenge something that is right at the core, which is a relationship with authority. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really big. And obstetric, obstetric violence. I mean, I actually, um, 
I'm really a fan of calling things by their true name. And so when I see things happen, a lot of times I try and take the idea of a birth out of it if it's not something that's evidence-based, i.e. if it's not something that's making the, the birthing parent or the or the baby safer, then I take out that aspect of it and I look at it for what it is and I call it by its true name. So many times what I'm witnessing is a human rights violation, is a sexual assault, is, um, is an assault, is battery, um, and whatever it is. And, and I think it's really powerful to call it that. Um, mm-hmm. Because often we use the baby, we use the baby as this kind of um, fear kind of tactic of like the baby, dead baby, like all that, that's all you have to allude to. You don't even need to say dead baby. Um, or like, you know, you could have, this could have happened. And, and many times the things that, that happen in the hospital are actually putting the life of the mom or of the, of the parent and the baby in danger. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that happen that really feel like um, manipulation and abuse and coercion and I think it's important that people understand that and start calling it that um, rather than, than going in with this idea that they're going to be safe. And I wish they could. I wish, I wish my is, job didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, know, it, it, is, it is tough to, um, to face that reality. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's true for me personally and um, for several of my close friends who I've gotten to know through the, the world of birth. Um, that um, that it really turned on its head our ideas about what society, what American society thinks of women, um, how how we are respected or not respected, and what our what our rights are. Um, I think it's really shocking for any any you know uh, relatively privileged American woman to find that. In, in a lot of ways, she isn't considered as having any rights in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a really jarring realization. I know it was for me, um, someone who would never identify with the word feminist um, prior to my experience with maternity care. And, um, and certainly with a, a lot of other women who I've talked to who were like, my goodness, you know, we thought we had it pretty good here in the U.S., in our lives. Um, and then we went to have a baby and we found out that we didn't actually have the rights that we thought we had over our bodies. We weren't respected as decision makers in our healthcare, And that's, um, that's a scary thought. It is. It is. And I think that we, perhaps this is the only place where some people will really come face to face with sexism. And with, um, with that idea that they need to protect themselves because birth is something, and I think the experience of giving birth in this country is something that touches everybody regardless of race and class and socioeconomic status. But I think it's really important to remember that in any of those things, if we're trying to make things better, it is important to make things better for people of color, for um, trans people, mm-hmm. um, first because they are so disproportionately affected um, right. by these injustices. And I'm just going to call them injustices because that's what they are. And, and, and often what happens and what sometimes happens with it, with the doula, with doula work too, because it is something um, that you, that you need to kind of know about and you need to be aware that you're looking for that. I think often we're, we're making things better actually for the top percent of people um, in terms of socioeconomic status or in terms of, of how much, privilege they have um and actually we need to be making things better for for the bottom level and then everybody kind of benefits from that and that needs that kind of needs to be the model and um yeah i mean like like with everything that is this sort of really apparent and i think we again we just need to name it there is this really apparent violence against black bodies and it happens in many different ways as we know we're all um you know we're all aware of of uh of the news every day but i think that you know we really need to look at that in birth too because i'll talk to people who are activists and and who are really involved in in these movements and i think just looking at at where we need to be you know our sisters and brothers keeper and where we need to be paying attention and we we need to be vigilant Mm -hmm. um because it, it, it isn't it's yeah it's it's not something that at this point is 
how I've, ex- I've explained that to, um, to white people before, like as a white woman, you might get an episiotomy that you said no to mm-hmm. as a black woman, you might get an episiotomy and then, um, have your baby taken away from you. Um, the, you know, the violence is, the violence is pervasive. It's all across the spectrum, but mm-hmm. it, um, but it, like you said, it really disproportionately affects more marginalized populations. Um, these can be, these can be absolutely, you know, life altering, life changing, life ending um, events. I can think of, you know, some, some really horrific, horrific stories that I've heard and women I've worked with directly, um, women of color who have had, um, had just unimaginable things happen to them, um, which I'm not going to share here because I don't want to violate anyone's privacy. Um, but things that their lives will never be the same. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their children's lives will never be the same. Um, um, it's because of racist attitudes and bullying mm-hmm. towards these women that can come out in in physical punishment or in um, in the separation of the mom and the baby. So thank you for highlighting that. I think that's really that's really important for people to know. It is, and I think that I, th- I think that we can't do anything unless we unless we kind of all agree that it's happening, and we and we choose to see it and I think that some of it is so insidious like sometimes when I'm in the hospital and if I just wrote down a script of everything that's being said somebody would look back on it and be like this is maddening you know Mm -hmm. I'll have I'll have a a provider come in and say looks like you're uncomfortable let's get an epidural so so maybe they'll get an epidural and they'll and they'll say well will it slow down my contractions no it's not going to slow down your contractions and then the provider will come in while your contractions are slowing down because of the epidural totally just dis- dis- doesn't even address the fact that they said that that wouldn't happen. That is completely, that's just saying the opposite of what you just said. You, you said I could get an epidural and my, it wouldn't slow down my contractions. Now my contractions are slowed down and you're coming in and saying, well, and it's the, it's the way that it's said too, as if like, well, look what you did. Now your contractions have slowed down and these are, and there's all this language and language is so important. We know language is important. Language shapes your reality. And based on the amount of privilege you have, maybe your language shapes the reality of people that are not you. And that's where it's important. So this doctor is then saying, well, your contractions are inadequate. That's the word that they'll use. Inadequate contraction pattern, incompetent cervix there's all this language that's built up around failure and undermining yeah i was going to say the actual word failure yeah and they'll say failure to progress so yeah failure to progress and then they'll say well let's have some pitocin and they'll be like okay well are there any negative effects of pitocin nope it's totally fine we do it all the time we'll just put it up in little increments and we'll turn it down if it gets too much Um, but we just want to get you we just want to get a a good contraction pattern again. So then they'll put the Pitocin on. Okay. But now baby's heart rate is going down. The baby is decelling because the baby's reacting to the Pitocin. Well, okay. Well now we've, we're having these variables. Now we're having these D cells. You know what? I think we need to get baby out. Baby's not having a good time in there. We've just, we've got to get baby out. And, and that now we've got to go back and have a C-section and it's, and it's, and it has to be the woman's fault or the birthing person's fault. Then it's their fault. And it is all implied. And you wouldn't even believe me if I told you what I was saying. You wouldn't even believe me. I sometimes I've posted, you know, these, these obviously, you know, not outing anybody or, or talking about anybody specific story, but sometimes I've posted things on Facebook and said, well, you know, you think my job is just about holding babies and like, you know, essential oils and, and, <laughs> Ribosis and things. No, this is what it's about. It's about witnessing these things and watching these things and and naming the things that are happening in the room in the hopes that they will not happen. Um, and and people will get angry and people will fight me. And I get all these messages from white men that are like, um, actually, and I'm like, okay, show me your uterus. Um, but it but it's but it's interesting how people don't necessarily want to believe that. And it is it is so subtle, but it's intentional. On that note, we need to go to break again. When we come back, I want to hear exactly what those things are. We'll be right back. We are back with Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. And we're just about to get into the stories. So Emily, you alluded to um, 
posting on Facebook, like direct quotes, you know, things that you've heard said to a, a woman in labor or giving birth and that people don't believe you. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for me some of the things that you see that, um, that people don't want to believe? Well, I think the first thing is that when I talked about calling things by their names, so when I talk about the fact that my job is less about holding babies and more about witnessing and trying to avoid sexual assault and human rights violation, I think that immediately is let me let me, let me stop you on the sexual assault term because I know people are going to be rolling their eyes mm-hmm. <laughs> at that. Um, mm-hmm. which is, which is what I did when I first heard it described that way, um, until I learned more about it and understood more about it. So we're talking about at times, um, assaults okay. of women mm-hmm. and this is assault. These are assaults on their sexual organs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a woman in California who actually sued her doctor for, um, battery because he performed an episiotomy during childbirth without her consent. And um, she was able to file that lawsuit because that's exactly what it is. When we talk about assault and battery, which is essentially um, unwanted touching, that's what it is. You don't, you don't lose your right to say no to unwanted touch when you are in, um, in a hospital. Yes. So um, what I can say about that is, for example, I have been in a situation where a doctor wanted to place a urinary catheter and my client, a young woman of color was saying, no, I don't want to have that. It's going to be uncomfortable. They did not have an epidural in which case it would, it would be needed. Um, and this person was so saying, there wasn't like an emergent reason for the there was no emergent but medical reason. It was like um, this person was saying no. Yeah, there was no emergent me- medical reason. The person was saying no, and the doctor began to put their hand uh, into the the vagina. And I looked into the doctor's eyes and said, "If she's saying no, and you're putting her, your hand in, into the vagina, you need to take it out." And I don't ever want to have to say that because that is assault. I've also had doctors walk into a room and without saying anything, begin to check check a woman in labor. So without saying anything, without even saying, hi, I'm the doctor, um, coming in, not even in in scrubs or anything, just coming in and putting their hand into a woman, um, trying to check them or reduce a, a cervical lip. Um, I've had doctors who, I mean, I have clients who ask me, you know, I don't think I want to have a lot of cervical exams. So the cervical exams are to check the amount of dilation in centimeters, um, which is, which is part of the progression of labor. And, um, you know, I'm, I kind of say it, well, there is never a time when somebody doesn't have to have your, your consent to put their hand in your vagina. That's not a thing. You can always say no to somebody putting their hand in your vagina and I think that that's re- it's really important that we understand that that's assault because for many people who are going, I mean, I don't know the exact statistic for how many people have experienced sexual assault right now. And it's because it is so phenomenally high. But if you're thinking about the fact that a lot of people, a high number of people who are giving birth have experienced sexual assault, for them to have to be re-traumatized and the fact that birth is something that is impacted by your emotional state, which is the whole, one, of, one of the reasons why having a doula is so important, to think about the fact that somebody will be re-traumatized by the person that they trust to save theirs and their baby's life if it needs to, is unacceptable to me. And then just to think about yeah. all these things that happen that, that are maybe first-time sexual assault for that person. And this is what really helped me to understand why it is so important that if I see something, I have to say something, was that the body recognizes trauma. Whether that person who's experiencing the trauma and their body's recognizing the trauma looks around the room and sees the faces of the people saying, yes, this is a trauma that you're experiencing or not, the yeah. body recognizes it. And when I don't validate the fact that that trauma happened and say, yeah, that doesn't need to be happening, or no, that's not okay, or listen to them afterwards and say, yes, I hear you, that wasn't okay. That person has to deal with that. They have, to conti- they have to continue to deal with the fact that it is going to be, their experience is going to be at odds because they're going to have experienced something that felt like trauma and everybody in the room looks like it's normal. And that's very scary because that's the normalizing of sexual violence. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how many women I've talked to who have said that was one of the most traumatic parts, very, very alone in experiencing that. And no one else in the room was recognizing that she was experiencing a trauma or an assault. Well, exactly. And, and trauma wants to be ignored. Like if you look at trauma and you start to deal with it, it starts to be able to change. And that's one of the things too, is that yes, you know, many people experience birth and maternity care in a way that is traumatic. And then we don't really have a lot of space in our culture and built into the care that we provide that allows people to talk about it. So then we have, you know, we don't, we're not even comfortable seeing a postpartum body. We're not even comfortable seeing like the fact that somebody doesn't just go back to how they were before they had a baby, like immediately. Mm, We're not even there as a society. And that has an effect on people who give birth and it's a negative effect and it really affects outcomes. It really affects what their experience is like in their body in a, in terms of their health, you know? And that's where I start to be like, we need to make these connections between our words and our actions. It is an obstetric violence is an, is an extension of rape culture. It's an extension of allowing things to happen that don't need to happen. It's an extension of siding with the perpetrator and not with the victim with this yeah the victim yeah, yeah, so, yeah you know and it's this is what's what's important to me more than you know i love how, there are so many amazing things about my job that are really fluffy and cute you know there's like being with the families afterwards and them talking through their birth and you know us remembering all these moments and the power that people feel and, and all of these different things and birth is very humbling it's an amazing force to be around but then there's this other side that i don't want to be there but it's there Part of it is that I wish I could just be there and just be at the birth, but it's also like I need to be vigilant. I need to be watching because these things happen and they happen in such a small way. It's like these small things that happen that lead up to it. First of all, um, you don't get to wear your clothes. You have to wear this gown and you have to lay on the bed on your back and you're doing all these things before you even realize that you can be saying no to stuff. You've done like five things that you didn't need to consent to and you're already doing them and by then it's like well you don't need you know, we'll you, know let you know what you can do um I, while you were talking I, I i remembered that um that acog the um the national obstetricians group actually put out a statement about adult manifestations of childhood sexual abuse and how it related to um, obstetrics and gynecology. So I think it's really interesting that they actually recognize that a significant number of people have experienced sexual violence. And um, I think I think they identified about one in five women as having been um, experiencing sexual abuse, which is a huge number. That means that any given birth care provider is absolutely going to be working with survivors. And they, um, I, I looked up the statement while you were talking really quickly. And um, because I remembered, they said this thing that I really appreciated them saying. Um, they said, pelvic examinations, just for one, may be associated with terror and pain for survivors. Feelings of vulnerability in the lithotomy position, that's the backlying position, Mm-hmm. And being examined by relative strangers may cause the survivor to re- re-experience past feelings of powerlessness, violation, and fear. Many survivors may be traumatized, but may not dis- express discomfort or fear and may silently experience distress, which is totally true. You know, mm-hmm. I've talked to women, you know, who have said that they, they were completely re-traumatized at a certain moment in their birth. And, um, the things started happening, they disassociated, kind of left their bodies and remained away, you know, remained disassociated for the remainder of the birth because it was that traumatizing for them. And no one in the room is aware of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, it's, it's really, it, it is this huge silencing. Um, I, I don't know, I think a really a really interesting book to read as Rebecca Solnit's men explain things to me because it's, it really touches upon the, the, the very subtle and then not so subtle forms of gender-based violence. And I think that really helped me to, it's one of the things that helped me that was actually a lot of things that helped me not 
related to birth because I like to be able to understand things outside of the context of birth and then bring them into the context of birth because right. mm-hmm. often it's not about birth at all. It's just birth is kind of the excuse for it. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, about, a, that was a really yeah. good book for me to read. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense actually. Yeah. Because so much is, you know, just like um, rape isn't about sex necessarily. It's, it's about, about power. power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, in the same way that um, abuse in, in medical care, can be about power. It's mm-hmm. not actually about safety or medicine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to look at the uh, at the origins of things. That's really helped me. I've been looking at the origins of of the origins of gynecology, which is like one you know one of the real founding fathers of gynecology began by experimenting on slaves. And what's important about that is we have not gone back and said first of all we're still like eh, did slavery really happen? Um, you know, there's still that kind of like h- horrible. Um, kind of idea going around of like real, yeah, denial, but we've never gone back and said, okay, let's do it differently. So as far as I'm concerned, unless you've addressed something and decided to do it differently, you're doing it the same. It's the same thing as like abolishing slavery, but still having like mass incarceration. It might be, and, and, you know, using prisoners as this like unpaid workforce is like, it might not be called the same thing, but if it looks like the same thing, it's the same thing. So I really like to remember those things and hold them with me when I'm going to birth in order to be able to really be ready and understand. And you have to understand that intention is so important. You know, where, some, where something comes from, what's its origin story. Um, and, and it is very important to for people to remember that because I think we so easily yeah. forget. That's part of the human experience. We wouldn't even be able to be here if we weren't able to forget um, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, um, it's James Baldwin. He's like, you know, if I'm alive, I'm, I'm going to be an optimist. I have to be, otherwise I'm, those are the two <laughs> options. Um, and it's kind of like that, right? Like we, we have to be, we have to be optimistic, but we also have to be awake and be yeah. paying attention. Yeah. Because but, I know you can do better than this. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Birth Aloud. Okay, and we are back with Emily, who is a doula who has primarily worked in New York City. So Emily, um, have you ever had a birth that made you want to quit being a doula? Yes, um, I can think of one in particular. You know, I have these experiences where I feel so silenced and so powerless, and I can't even imagine how the person giving birth feels. And sometimes they are so, they're so part of it and that, or they're so um, out of it that they, they don't even realize until later, but they know um, what, what's happening. And, and this was just very, this they, was just just very, they don't have time to concentrate on it. No, they don't. And, and also they're, they're not expecting it. Like sadly at this point, I'm kind of like not looking for it, but I'm vigilant. It was, it was this doctor, um, you know, this person had been checked, um, had been at the same amount of dilation for, for a number of hours, and they had been checked and they had a lip of cervix left, which means that they have less than a centimeter left to dilate. They're almost fully dilated, in which case they can start pushing. And they just had this little lip. And um, I saw their doctor check them. The doctor was very tired, wanted to go home. I saw the doctor check them and, uh, and was like, oh, okay, well, um, yeah, you're fully dilated. And I knew he was lying. Like I just knew he was lying because I knew he was just like, F it, I'm just tired, I'm, I'm going to go home. So he just left, didn't come back. And this nurse came in and the nurse checked and said, oh, there's still a lip here. So then went and told the new doctor that was coming on shift. This new doctor um, in the middle of a contraction walks in, not dressed, um, not, not even dressed, just in their like clothes that they've been, been wearing outside, just walks in. I, I, I didn't even realize it was a doctor. I, I literally was about to be like, sir, you're in the wrong room. Walks in, doesn't say anything, middle of a contraction, puts his hand into my client's vagina and starts trying to reduce the lip. This is a really painful thing to do, even if you know that it's coming. And, and this person did not know this was coming. Also, this man has... I'm assuming she didn't have an epidural... She did not have an epidural. It, it was painful. Like she was, she was screaming and I, and I look, I, I was by her head and I said, do you want him to stop? Uh, and she said, yes. So I said, she's asking you to stop. And he took his hand out and he was, he was angry um, because we had, we'd asked him to stop. Um, he hadn't even asked for consent. It's really important to understand that. And he said, well, I need to, I need to reduce the lip. Really angry looking at me as if I somehow had any Put that lip there. in my body. Um, 
Yeah. I said, uh, well, I need to re- reduce the lip. And I said, not without consent. You don't. And he was really angry. Um, and then he continually throughout the birth was talking down to my client. Um, he had been in earlier and said, who's this good looking doula you found about me, which is a power play putting me in my place and I don't get to speak back to him. So that was, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm with my client who is in labor. That is embarrassing. I didn't even really realize and conceptualize how much abuse I take in my job from, from providers. Like it is constant, like nobody respects me, you know, and that's beside the point because I'm there for my, for my client, but it is part of it. So then, um, then, then it, it, you know, there's more, there's more contracting. Eventually the nurse comes in and gently helps to reduce the lip. We really like the nurse and my client is pushing. And then this doctor and for some reason, somebody representing the legal department of the hospital come in and say, and start having this. And, and this is like, my client is um, exposed. So their genitals are exposed. These two men walk in and are standing over her, talking down to her and saying like, well, I think, you know, and, and, and talking about all this. Well, I think we've let it go on for, for too long as if you can let somebody do something with that body, right? Like as if that's even a thing. And all of this very um, coercive and bullying language, standing, looking down, looking down at her. And eventually um, she does end up having a C-section. And, you know, that all might sound like, oh, well, you know, that's, that's fine. But it, it's not fine. So much of that was abusive. So much of it, you know, if you saw that happening and it, when there were no, there was not a baby involved, that would be terrible, right? You would be like, that is definitely wrong. But because there's a baby involved and because it's a doctor, I, I just felt so angry at how, at the power plays that were being used, mm-hmm. at the intentional mechanisms of control and the complete disregard for the idea of consent. You know, there's a reason that the consent has a definition. It's not hard. There was no, it was not a medical emergency, you know, so for the, for the fact, you know, and, and then of course that's going to be so demoralizing. Imagine how that feels for that person giving birth. Imagine like your, your provider is coming in and first of all, not respecting your boundaries, getting angry when you do assert a boundary as if they have any right to do that. You know, that, and it is so much about ego and so little about evidence-based medicine, you know, and that is, it literally is just like, and that's where I start making it about like, yes, this is about misogyny. It's not about birth. It's not Mm -hmm. about medicine. It is about misogyny because I have some amazing births in hospital and every birth, of course, that I attend is amazing, but I have some births where I don't witness those things or I don't witness them to that, to a, to that degree. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask you, um, so how might that have looked? What's another way that that might have looked Mm -hmm. without, without the power plays and without the, um, the lack of consent. So giving the correct information, communicating the information to the client, you still have a lip. Just giving the correct information is really, really important. It's really unethical to lie to somebody about what's happening. Um, So that's really important. And then asking for consent, talking through something to the very end of what you're going to do before you even begin to do it is really important. Um, There is normally time to do that. Unless, and I always say this to, to clients, this is kind of something I say in, in our prenatal visits is that they're like, well, what can I say no to? And I'm like, you can say no to everything because if somebody needs to save your life, they're going to do it. So actually everything that happens in that room, unless it's life-saving, in which case it's already happening because I've seen that happen too, um, you can say no to. You can ask questions. You can ask for more time. You do deserve respect. It's not like you stop being a person just because you have a baby. I know that society is going to tell you that, but I'm here to tell you differently. Well, I would take it a step further than respect and say those are actually basic legal rights. Yes. Yeah. Well, totally. It's not just a concept. Um, those are actual legal rights. Yeah. And it does have repercussions. And I think if I had had more, um, I I've been to a, a number of births where I felt like I would only wish to return and interact with those particular people if there was a lawyer present. And, um, and I, I do think it's important, you know, I'm not trying to demonize all providers, of course, but I do think it's important that, you know, that we speak 
to what people can lose if they don't listen. Because I feel like having a doula and all of these things is still not enough. I do feel like, you know, like the cases where people sue their doctor and win, which are, which are very few. I know that very, all the cases. Very few. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are really important, um, not just because of what that person, that individual stands to gain, but because of the message that it sends to everybody about how much we have to actually put up with. That those, that those legal rights will actually be protected. Yes, we are protecting, we are intentionally like protecting people who are the perpetrators of violence over the victims of that violence. And that is very, very scary. And I think every time somebody is able to, to hold their own and able to um, achieve a victory in a situation like that, where they are able to have their their rights protected and they are able to, um, to, to, to achieve a level of justice for whatever they've been through, I think that we need to amplify that. I think we need to listen to that. And I think a lot of people need to see it because we need to know it's really hard to fight for your rights when you don't know that they're being taken away. And it's really yeah. hard to fight for your rights when you don't know that you can and you don't know how many people are listening and you don't know if it's happened before. Um, and, you know, it's, it, I, I think it's, it's so, it's just so hugely well, important. You know, I've said, I've said for a few years now, if women only knew what their rights were and if they only knew that what happened to them happens all the time to all kinds of people Mm -hmm. that they would be in the streets up in arms over there. I don't mean literal arms, I mean figurative arms um, about the rights violations that happen in maternity care. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's absolutely right. And, um, and just to have people recognize, you know, that I'm not making it up because you do, you feel like a conspiracy theorist Mm -hmm. telling people what happens. You feel like you're like, okay, so aliens are real. And also here's my theory about 9-11. You know, it's like, like, um, and you, you feel like that and then people go through it and they're like, oh, now I know what you mean. It's horrible. It's horrible to have to have people learn like that. I never want that to happen. And yeah. for some people, that is literally how they have to learn. All right. Well, we have to wrap it up. Thank you for coming on here and talking to me. Thank you so much, Kristen. It was great talking with you. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.